Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 68. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. We're still in quarantine. Yeah, still. You bored yet, Matt? Pretty bored, although I've taken up drinking and uh, <laughs> doing a lot of um, stuff off the mats, trying to trying to do a lot for the podcast now, trying to write more, so... And with the Patreon account, there was more pressure to, to produce and we have more time. So yeah, we used yeah. to be able to say, hey, take it or leave it. It's free. I'm not sure we can do that anymore. I feel now like there's a gun to our head. So we got to actually make quality stuff on a pretty regular clip. Yeah. So, a gun that provides for us. Yeah. <laughs> it's we, an abusive relationship with our patrons. <laughs> and we're very grateful for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, this is maybe going to dovetail nicely into the topic that we wanted to discuss today. So... We've talked in the past about the timing around creating your own gym. We've also talked with Rob Bernacki about best practices for a business. But today, I think, is a good time to talk about entrepreneurship. And in a very general sense, not just necessarily related to a gym, but the process of striking out and hopefully succeeding on your own and maybe building a business and a legacy behind it to take care of your family. So... The reason I want to do this topic is because my thought is this is probably the best opportunity in your lifetime to create your own business if that's something that you are interested in doing. I mean, the reality is a lot of us are going to either have been laid off or will be laid off. A lot of us have seen our hours or our finances otherwise impacted. Um, this is a terrible time, but we've also seen that many governments are stepping it up and are coming up with ways to try to offer support and keep people afloat during this difficult time. So if you are in a situation where you no longer have a job, and the entire economy is basically closed down and the government is now looking to actually help support you and pay a lot of your bills, that is like the perfect storm for an entrepreneurial situation. This is probably going to be the best opportunity you will have in your life to consider thinking about starting your own business. So our suggestion here is let's talk about that and let's think about whether that's something that you would be interested in, in doing and maybe give some tools to you that would help you get off the ground. It's also the perfect storm for an economic collapse. Well, that too, that too. But, but, <laughs> Ironically, kind of two different things on different ends of the spectrum. It's like on one hand, the economy kind of, you know, could possibly collapse. On the other hand, it might be a good opportunity to focus on something you're good at, that you're passionate about and starting a business. Because honestly, you know, there's a lot of people out there that think the economy is just going to totally crash. 
I tend to think that uh, things are going to change, but at the end, I think the economy will boom again. I, I absolutely agree with you. I'm, I'm not so convinced that it's going to be the uh, the Great Depression all over again. Yeah. But, you know, and who e- knows? frankly, even if it is, I mean, these kinds of situations provide opportunities for new businesses to come in, right? There are going to be a lot of businesses that go bankrupt, and there are going to be a lot of new business models that suddenly become viable if a lot of the old business models can't work anymore. I mean, if we're all basically confined to our houses or... Even when this thing blows over, if we take working from home more seriously, right, this could really change the social norms around what people are looking for in terms of products and services. So if you want to think outside of the box and you want to start your own business, now is probably a time to really start at least thinking about it. I'm not saying that you absolutely must do it, but it is probably worth spending a little bit of time thinking about whether you should do this or not. Now. This is not specifically a jujitsu related topic, but let's be honest, everyone in the jujitsu community is impacted by this right now. So I think it is relevant to all practitioners. But going above and beyond that, there's probably going to be a lot of interesting opportunities for jujitsu related products and services that we haven't even thought of yet. And as life starts to get closer and closer to going back to normal, a lot of doors might open up and it's probably good to start having that conversation now. Yeah, like if you took if you look on Facebook, pretty much every gym owner except for myself is doing like online jujitsu stuff. Uh, the reason I'm not doing it is because, to be honest, there's so many world class uh, competitors and jujitsu fighters that are giving their online stuff away for free right now. So I figure let them let people watch their stuff and I'll focus on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But there's also a ton of really bad online jujitsu uh, instructions going on right now. Like um, a lot of gym owners I'm seeing are showing techniques and stuff. And I'm just like, ah, I don't really care for that. But that being said, it is sort of the bringing about this whole new thing where people are now really focusing on, you know, possibly working from home, possibly having online academies where there weren't before. Um, and, you know, when this is all said and done, assuming things get better, maybe there will be some benefits. For instance, like you said, Steve, people will be more serious about working from home. There might be more opportunities. There might need to be more opportunities working from home just because uh, of the situation. <clears throat> It becomes a necessity for the economy to keep moving. So as a result, when, you know, people go back to work, maybe they don't need to go back to work anymore. And, and there you have, uh, you know, less people commuting and less pollution and on and on as kind of a domino effect of, uh, of good things possibly. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Who really knows? I'm being kind of optimistic right now. But, you know, that's uh, it's important to stay optimistic in these times. But right now what we're really discussing is, you know, if, uh, if, some, if being an entrepreneur is something that you are interested in, maybe to give you some insight as to whether you should do that or not. And, uh, you know, I've gone through that. I used to be a chef and then, you know, decided to become an entrepreneur a few years ago. And it was the best move that I ever made. And at the time, it seemed like the scariest thing I could ever do. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the riskiest thing I could ever do. And, you know, did I have doubts? Absolutely. Um, But uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk about a few things that could you know, give you some insight as to whether or not you'd be successful. One thing's for sure is in school, in high school, uh, and even in secondary school for that matter, when I went to, uh, sorry, post-secondary school, when I went to culinary arts, nobody ever focused on opening your own business, which is kind of funny. It's like, it was all about, you know, when you go to high school, you learn mathematics that you really don't use much anymore. You learn biology that you don't learn, you know, you don't use anymore. You learn languages that you don't use anymore. None of it was really based towards 
you know, what are you good at? What is your passion? And how can you make that something that serves, uh, provides for you and your family in the future? Like, how do you create a business around your skills uh, that can enrich your community? Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, the the main shortcoming, I think, of our modern school system is that we don't cover a lot of skills that are really essential and critical to being a function, to being a functioning adult, like learning empathy, learning emotional intelligence, learning personal finance, learning entrepreneurship. These are things that are generally weak or absent in most schools. And they're so much more useful than most of the stuff that they do teach. So I'm hoping that today we can package up some information that will maybe provide you guys with a very brief education on how to get get your basically get your traction when you're starting a new business. Even parenting. <laughs> they don't teach oh, really yeah, anything yeah. about parenting either, right? Or balancing your checkbook or you know, what, what loans you should take and oh, yeah, teach yeah. you about debt and things like that. Exactly. And so we'll probably wind up talking about this a little bit here in, in this episode. Now, I guess the first thing to think of, and we've spoken about this prior, is understanding what kind of things you really ultimately want to do. And the way that I've had this described to me, a, a useful exercise that I found helpful was to draw a Venn diagram. And you know you know that if you're using a Venn diagram, you're doing some very clear and deep thinking, right? Venn diagrams are awesome. <laughs> um, but the thing that I suggest is draw a Venn diagram with three circles. One of them is, what are you passionate about? The other is, what are you really good at? And then the other is, what can you actually make a profit off of? And what you're looking for are the things that fall into the center of that Venn diagram that check all three of those boxes. You want to find something that you're really good at, that you're really passionate about, and that you actually can make money off of. And that's kind of the first thing you have to do as an entrepreneur is make sure that those three criteria are met. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, um, you know, I was good at cooking and I was passionate about cooking, but the thing that I was missing was, uh, you know, the possibility of making a living off of it. Like if I had opened a restaurant and this happened, I'd oh, be, you'd be gone. I'd be absolutely fucked. It would be the worst thing ever. Um, and yeah, I never really looked at my culinary career as, uh, as possibly opening my own restaurant because I thought about opening a restaurant and I just, I would start to get sweaty palms and I'd be like, this is, this is suicide. If you, if you do that, you have to rely on so many people. There's so many, uh, so many things that you need to keep in stock, inventory, both perishable and non-perishable. Food is super expensive. Equipment is super expensive. You know, there's so many costs. There's so many uh, headaches and many hours put into it. It just wasn't something that I ever thought would be possible. I, mm -hmm. I always wanted to be a culinary instructor. So, I, you know, whatever organization I'd be working for, it wouldn't be on me to keep running. It would be like a, I'd be a, member, a faculty member of a school, which to me seemed a lot more secure with benefits and good hours and whatnot. But then ha uh, having jujitsu, um, you know, to even add to your Venn diagram, Steve, like there, there's the profit, there's the passion, and then there's the, uh, you know, your competence. So if I'm good at something and I can make money at something and I really enjoy doing something, then you got to also think, okay, does that serve other purposes in life? Will I have a lot of free time? Will I have time to exercise? Will I have time to be with my family, right? These are the things that sort of come into play. They also didn't fit into my culinary Venn diagram because, um, you know, they're just, there just wouldn't be, and if I'm doing a 12 hour shift in the kitchen, there's going to be no time to, you know, see my kids during that time. There's going to be no time to get exercise and eventually, you know, and, and also not being a good husband, I'm sure. So, 
you know, eventually I'm going to end up 20 years down the road being a fat chef who possibly divorced and kids don't know me. So these are just all things that didn't really work when I, when I developed a 10 and 20 year plan. So that's when I sort of decided, okay, I'm going to make a, you know, it's going to take baby steps. It's going to take years and a lot of hard work, but I'm going to have to start planting the seed now in order to have a business within five years. And that's what I did. And yeah, best, best decision I ever made. Yeah. And this really touches on something important, which is understanding the cost to creating a business. And I don't say this to try to scare anyone away from it, but it's important to understand that not all businesses have identical costs. And so when you're looking at the different options on the table, you want to think, what is this going to get me? And what is this going to cost me? So basically, you're calculating the return on investment here. You want to understand, like, what is the realistic path to making money here? And am I actually just making money or am I making profit? Because that's quite a different thing, right? If you're making a bunch of revenue, but your expenses for running the business Mm -hmm. are so high that you're just not actually pocketing anything, that's a big, big problem. And the other example you gave, Matt, are intangible costs that people don't think about. Like different types of work have different personal requirements on you, some of which may require sacrifices to your personal relationships or your family. But those are not universal constants for all types of jobs. You know, some types of careers or jobs or businesses may offer you a lot more flexibility and may not take such a toll. I mean, a great example that you gave, Matt, is if you want to open your own restaurant, I mean, Granted, let's strike out the fact that we're talking about a situation now where that's really not viable due yeah. to COVID. Don't open a restaurant right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but if you want to give a, you know, if you want to have an example of doing like an ROI analysis on that, one of the issues with restaurants is that you basically have a very, very high cost of upkeep and cost of sales, right? You can't just like say, you know, yeah, you might think maybe I can charge like $15 a person if I, or $20 a person if I can get them in the door or whatever. But you got to think about what is it going to cost for, for labor, for, um, to keep things clean, for all of the required business licenses, for insurance, for the cost of the food itself, like the, for the cost of rent. It's really hard to keep a restaurant afloat, which is a problem with that kind of business. Now, if you live somewhere where the cost of living and the cost of rent is cheap, that's maybe not a problem as long as you can get enough customers. But if you live in a very expensive city, that becomes a challenge. And you'll notice that in very expensive cities, Matt, like ours, restaurants are coming and going all the time. Yeah. You, you don't have a lot of 30-year-old family restaurant businesses in Vancouver. No. And and especially now when you have like Cactus Club and, and uh, toma- uh, I almost called it Joey Tomatoes, Joey's, basically like I, I consider them kind of the Walmarts of the culinary industry where it's like, you know, where do you want to eat tonight? Oh, I'm going to go to the most, you know, uh, generic culmination of of cultures of food which Mm -hmm. is basically vancouver's food scene is just take something from every culture and put it on a menu and that's your cactus club right and it's like Mm -hmm. those businesses i think those places suck to eat but they kill everything they they all the mom and pop shops get closed down because these companies are so consistent and they they're trying to stay in with the trends and for some reason people just keep going back there so it's, they have a really loyal customer base you know if you're going to open a joey's there's a really high chance that that place is going to do well whereas if you open a you know a one-off mom and pop shop man, it was like, you're going to have to grind so hard to make it happen. And and I just basically looked at that, <clears throat> you know, the work that I put in and the money that I put in probably wouldn't be profitable in the end. And that's what really 
you know, prevented me from doing something like that. And another re- another reason I, I didn't want to do that is because the fact that you rely on so many people. If you run a, a, a restaurant from the cook staff, the dish staff, the bartenders, the servers, um, you know, you're relying on so many people. People are going to be calling in sick. They're going to be coming and going. Nobody has any loyalty to you. They're going to go if if some, if a place down the street charges uh, or pays them more money, they're going to go there. And another thing is the expenses that you discussed, Steve, are so expensive. Food is so expensive these days. And on the flip side, the customer doesn't want to pay a lot for food. You know, a customer is mm-hmm. trying to get good food at the cheapest price they can. So, Again, it's going to be hard to create customer loyalty when people just don't want to pay for food. So in the end, it's really not that, in my opinion, not that great of a business model unless you're an extremely wealthy person that is willing to invest a lot of money into a a restaurant. Yeah. If you want to engage in an industry like that, you kind of have to be able to do it at a colossal scale because... Like you said, Matt, the margins are so poor that the only way to really make money is to be running at such a scale that you can benefit from the the savings at running at that scale. Like if you when you're, you know, running dozens and dozens and dozens of restaurants in a big chain, there's an economy of scale. It basically gets cheaper because you're basically just doing the same thing over and over again in a bunch of different places. And so you can build systems for that. But if you're just a mom and pop, you've got to really think about, you know, how much money am I actually going to be able to keep in my pocket? That's much more important than how much money am I going to be able to create. So if you're starting a new business, a red flag for an an industry that you might want to avoid is one where there is a race to the bottom. We've talked about this in the past. This is a counterproductive business model where people get so competitive that they actually manage to drive cost down to the point where no one is making any money anymore. And although this might benefit the consumer in the short term, it's bad in the long term because it means people's services are being undervalued and you can't, the the people who are creating value can't actually get money for that value. So the example that I always give in my industry look at the app store or something where, you know, people think now that paying $2 for an app on your phone is too expensive. Like you're talking about a lot of labor that went into this thing. A lot of these people don't make really any meaningful money and you're complaining about $2. Like that's a race to the bottom where the value of the service has been devalued to the point due to competition or artificial or intentional pressures, it's been devalued to the point where it's just a bad idea to play that game. Like you don't want to play a game where you're more likely to lose than to win, right? And restaurants can be another example of that because there's so much pressure to deflate prices. And that makes it really, really hard for you to get off the ground. So one thing that you need to understand when you're starting a business, you need to figure out what is the actual likelihood of me making real money off of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, sometimes you can change the narrative here just by changing the type of businesses that you target. Like, for example, if you're providing professional services and you're providing them to, I don't know, like lawyers, you're probably going to be able to justify charging a lot. If you're providing professional services to libraries, you're not going to make any money at all, right? (laughs) So you have to really consider the type of audience that you're targeting because that matters so much when it comes to how much you can realistically charge for your services. Yeah, like I'm very fortunate that my my business model is very, you know, forgiving in that at first it was not easy because I'd have to pay off all my mats and find a space and market and get people through the door. That was the hard part. But once the business gets up and running and you can support yourself, it's basically like just 
it's it's pretty easy and everybody that comes in the door is is you're getting a raise basically so Mm -hmm. i think uh like if you're a good martial artist and people like you and you're a good instructor like that's a that's a strong business model because it is uh you know if you give it time and you nourish it 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 will pay off whereas if you have a restaurant man it's just like you're grinding and i feel like every every you know what if what if you uh, a guest comes in and gets food poisoning or a guest comes in and, you know, one of the, you know, the cooks are off that night and they have a bad experience. They're probably never going to come back again. You know what I mean? So it's like, how forgiving is your business model? Another thing to think about is like, uh, you're as an entrepreneur, you need to have specific mindset for something like that. Like you can't really just be, Oh, I'm just going to try this. I'm just going to, you know, just going to half-ass something. You kind of have to go into it a hundred percent and you mm-hmm. have to be in it for the long term Because like you mentioned, Steve, uh, obviously return on investment is important, but something like investing in loss is pretty much common for all businesses, I would say. Like expect to not be profitable for the first three, four, five years, really. Yeah. It, now it's going to depend on the type of business. Like if, for example, you're doing independent contracting or consulting, that's a little bit different because you're literally charging for the value of your time directly, right? Like if you're a roofer, for example, you'll probably start making money relatively soon. But if you're trying to run anything more complicated than just contracting your own time, it's very likely that you're going to be running at a loss. Like Uh, a location. Yeah, especially if you have a lot of costs up front, like it's very likely that you're going to be running at a loss initially. And you need to be able to prepare and ready yourself for that. And if there is ways to reduce the losses or to get profitable more quickly, that's something you want to think about. Like, uh, And some business models make this easier. Um, for example, I mean, I remember when Rob was on here talking about his online academy and his gym, he mentioned that one of the, his goals was to try to be profitable almost immediately. And that can be done in some situations if you're just really aggressive about managing costs. But for some types of business, that's not really realistic. Some types of business require you to have massive upfront costs before you can do anything. Like for example, Mm -hmm. if you want to, I don't know, if you want to build software and sell software, you've got to spend months, maybe years building something first before you can sell it. In most cases, there there are exceptions. Similarly, if you're starting a medical company, (laughs) right, you're, you're not going to be like selling medicine within like the first three weeks, you know, it takes, there's a lot of upfront cost and that's something you definitely have to consider so you need to bake that into your plan as well and we've spoken on the past steve about like oh should i go to school or or you know because because for me going through high school the the construct was basically like okay get ready because next is you know post-secondary school and kind of everyone needs to go to post-secondary school now you either need a degree or or whatever you need to you need to have some kind of post-secondary education and that's kind of how i was brought up is yeah, thinking that way and now that i am a jiu-jitsu school owner i mean i i did in a sense go to school because i went to jiu-jitsu every day for like 10 years mm-hmm. but at the same time it's a little bit different from going to school for something that is completely unusable and then you get out and you realize just how unusable that is when there's no jobs that relate to that field and you know now you've got your thousands of dollars, sometimes even tens of thousands of dollars into debt. So it's really important that if you do decide to go to school, think, okay, what's the, how is this going to directly benefit my future once I get out? Because really time is of the essence. And if you also got to think about things like, you know, do you, do you see yourself having a family in the next five or 10 years? Because if you do, 
you know, going to school could be a huge waste of time where you're not gaining really on the job experience. You're not getting paid. You're paying your own money and you're missing out on valuable time that you could be raising a family or doing other things as well. So really, I think school can be a trap sometimes. We've mentioned in previous episodes about that. And really, it should it should relate directly to the career that you're thinking about or the, the business that you're thinking about opening. Yeah, yeah. School's a tricky one. I mean, I, I can tell you from my personal experience that you know, I went and I did a two-year diploma uh, in basically computer programming, and I found that to be valuable because, and a big part of that was because I intentionally chose something that was shorter rather than a full four-year program uh, because I wanted to get into the workforce quickly. I found the two-year diploma valuable not because of the skills they taught me, but because they gave me the confidence that I could actually do this job. Uh, the actual stuff they taught me, I really never wound up using directly. Um but that said, I then later went back while I was working and part-time did a full four-year degree. And that was totally useless. Like that was just a massive waste of money. Um, and really, this is going to vary from a person-to-person basis because in some situations, education is very valuable. Like formal education, I mean, is very valuable and is essential. Like if you want to be an accountant, for example, or a lawyer, there are certifications that you are going to be required to have before you can even operate. And also in some other situations, education can be useful simply because the return on investment might be very good, right? Like if you want to be a tradesperson, you know, with a one or two year investment of your time and a quite a reasonable tuition in a lot of cases, you can learn a skill that will pay you very well for life. Like that is a good investment. But if you're going, you always want to ask yourself questions about whether you're maximizing the use of not, not just the cost of tuition, but the amount of years you have to spend on it. I don't want to make it sound like education is bad uh, because, I mean, I, there there are statistics that show that like on average, education dramatically improves your earning potential. Like education on as a whole is a good thing, but just really think about it and understand that education can be gained without having to go through some big formal expensive process. And in some cases, you might not need that. Like, I, you know, working in software, a lot of the time now, we don't even really care if people have degrees or diplomas. We just want good people who know what they're doing. And that that trumps everything, right? So I, when you're looking at options for education, just don't feel like you have to do it because society demands it. Make sure this is something you've really thought through. And because now, like I said, like at this point in time, it might be a lot easier depending on your situation to start your own business versus trying to like find a job somewhere else. And if you start your own business, in a lot of cases, I mean, you're, you're hiring yourself. <laughs> so there's yeah. a good chance you won't need that degree or diploma. Yep. And, um, you know, it might not even just be society that's expecting you to do it, but a lot of time you'll get a lot of pressure from your parents, right? Or maybe they've put it, put together money for you to go to school, which is wonderful. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, usually you can find good uses for money like that, even if you're not going to school, even if you're going to start a business, but... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think that uh, knowing what you're getting into, like if you're going to go into a underwater basket weaving class, <laughs> you're probably not going to be able to make use of that. Or, or I, you know, I might get flack for this, but like if you're doing a gender studies thing, mm-hmm. you're pro- it's probably going to be really hard for you to get a career when you come out of that. And I think a lot of these kids nowadays are taking these classes that are really, I don't even want to say pointless, but uh, pointless to the mean, to, to the point where there's, there's no like end to the, there's no, um, there's no benefit when you get out in terms of, of the money that you need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need money to keep, you know, your way of life and quality of life. But if you're going into a class that 
is just literally a class and then when you get out there's no career there's no options then you know it's probably not the best idea to go into a class like that and I think a lot of kids put a lot of resources into classes like this nowadays and that's that's not good that's that's it, it leaves a sour taste in people's mouths for academia as a whole and like you said Steve it's not that academia is bad you know, if, if you're going to do a trade or something, then you do need certain skills before you can even apply for certain jobs. Yeah, there are for most people, there are going to be like three big expenses in their life, right? There's their house, there's their car, and there's their education. And for anything of that scale where you're spending that much money, you really need to think through from every angle, whether it's the best possible investment for you. And I, again, I'm not saying don't go to school. Like for the vast majority of people, it's probably a great opportunity and a great decision to get that education. But to Matt's point, like the reality is a lot of post-secondary education is not intended to prep you to make money or to prep you for the workforce. It's intended to be like, quote unquote, mind expanding. Yeah, and to, it's a, I think it's indoctrination, a lot of it. Well, the, the thing is like a lot of it is like it's intended to give you ideas and hey, it's it's fine to have ideas. Ideas are awesome, but you can get ideas from anywhere. You don't need to go and pay someone fifty thousand dollars to get ideas, right? Like, exactly. um, it's great if you know. I I think it's awesome if you want to learn about things like philosophy, but you're not likely going to be able to make a lot of money off of that. So. If you're going into post-secondary, my suggestion is always have a plan for what you want to get out of it rather than just taking things that individually appeal to you as courses but may not actually have like a, an, an end result that you can like target. Because really at, at that point, especially when you're young, you want to make good decisions that will pay off later down the road. What you don't want is to waste your early years and then find out later that, you know, you lost like 10 years of prime earning potential because you were taking stuff that wasn't going to help you later. So um, let's let's go back onto the kind of the topic of entrepreneurship in general here, though. So we talked about kind of trying to identify the areas that you're interested in. We also talked about making sure that you're targeting something that actually has the potential for profit off of it. And we also talked about making sure that you understand what the upfront costs and investment are going to be for you. I guess another thing that we might want to also consider talking about is finding a, a niche or an area that hasn't been exploited yet. Because it is important when you create a business to understand who your competition is and what how hard it's going to be to pry audience away from them or customers away from them. So if you can find something that is novel, that hasn't been done before, and you still feel like it's in the center of that Venn diagram where you could actually make money off of it, that is the best case scenario. What you probably want to avoid, for example, is like opening up a, like a store right across the street from Walmart and trying to offer the same services, right? Yeah. Like that's not, a, that's not a winning formula. You want to try to find something where... It's it's a new and novel concept. And just by virtue of being the first person to do it, you're already ahead of the competition. The good news is we live in a world right now that is completely different from any other time in history due to the massive societal changes that are happening at the moment. And that means a lot of things that weren't viable or that people wouldn't even think about before are now suddenly becoming viable, right? That's going to change a lot because... 
if we're if we're in a situation now where social gatherings are out, at least for the time being, and virtual is in, a lot of services that previously we thought would have been ridiculous might suddenly become pretty cool and <laughs> pretty yeah. popular. Um, we're already starting to see that a lot of companies are pivoting tremendously to focus exclusively or, or significantly on fighting the stupid virus. And a lot of businesses may even wind up getting co-opted, like ha- what happened in World War II, right? You know, it, it could be a situation where companies that manufacture stuff are just ordered to change and manufacture totally different things. This could have really weird impacts on the economy. Might not have bad impacts. It might have great impacts. Like look at World War II and what that did for the economy. It gave the economy a massive kickstart that it needed along with the social programs that were put in place to, to get the heart beating again. And that exact thing is happening right now. So it is very possible that within a year or two from now, the economy could be great and very different. So that's why I'm thinking if you want to try something new and unique now, this is a great time to do it. Yeah, it was good for our economy. <laughs> it wasn't good for Europe's economy. <laughs> yeah. okay, it was so, great for our economy. Not a single bomb dropped. Well, fair. I can't say not a single bomb because Pearl Harbor, but... Uh, yeah, fair, yeah, fair point. This is coming from a very... Nor- <laughs> That's actually a good thing to clarify. This is a very North American perspective here. It was here. great for the German economy. Yeah. But no, like across the board though, these kinds of challenges offer massive growth opportunities. So I, I would say... Try to think of something that matches your your requirements for passion, for your skill set, and for your ability to make a profit. And try to find a situation where you're, no one's ever done it before, or at least they haven't done it in the way that you've done it. Like a perfect example is this podcast. There is not much content out there that works or operates like this podcast, which I think is part of the reason we had so much growth, um, d- despite the fact that we've only been doing it for slightly over a year, right? Um, I think the reason why it's resonated so much with people is because what we do is a very different way of teaching jujitsu and concepts and the fact that we don't have video and so we can't just say okay put your hand here and put your leg here it forces us to really think about and talk about concepts and because it's a podcast people can listen to it in the car or while they're cleaning their house or doing stuff that um, doesn't require their full attention and so that's kind of opened up a market for us that's really resonated. Yeah, it's not just it's not just jujitsu we talk about. Like right now we're talking about businesses. Our last episode was about gratitude. You know, we're talking about things that apply in life, not just in jujitsu. So it's mm-hmm. not like we're doing a, an instructional. It's more that we're just talking about uh, parallels between jujitsu and life and how to be more efficient at both of them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's kind of a unique concept that really worked for us. And if you're going to do your own thing, I would say before you just march out there and do it, Try to find something that is unique like that, that you think will resonate. Um, and really the best thing to do, the best way to do that, I think, is just to sit down and have a good think about it. Um, the other thing too is that if you can minimize risk by trying something quickly and then evaluating whether it works, it's better to find out if you, if you're on the right path early rather than later. So, we talked in the past about the feedback loop. This is a concept that comes up a lot. Is Oh, Matt's going up. Matt, is this a bathroom break? What's going on? It's a bathroom break. Great, great. High quality content here. Um, we talked in an earlier episode about the feedback loop. So this is actually a concept borrowed from the software world. And basically, the idea is... You want to try something, you want to measure the result, and then you want to learn from it so that the next time you go through the loop, you can do an even better job. So the mistake you don't want to make 
is to spend a year building a company and a product in the hopes that after a year, you'll finally be able to sell it and then find out that actually no one wants to buy it or no one is willing to pay for it. You specifically want to avoid that situation. So if there's anything that you can do upfront early to validate the idea then that is going to help you a lot. So as an example, um, let's say that you've got a new service you want to offer. I don't know. Maybe you want to offer some like toilet paper delivery service, something relevant right now. Um, rather than taking all of the time and money to like incorporate the company and build a supply chain and build an online ordering site, you could just launch a simple online landing page and say, hey, I'm launching this. Put in your email if you're interested or put in your credit card if you're interested and just see how many people bite. Because if you do something like that and you find out that nobody actually is interested, well, you've saved yourself a lot of time and a lot of money versus if you built up this whole big business and then found out a year later that there was no appetite for it. And that's back from the bathroom. I want to point out we're recording two episodes back to back here and We've only been in this room for like two hours and Matt has pissed like five times. It's absolutely ridiculous. I stay very hydrated. (laughs) You must have like a bladder the size of a walnut. This is just absolutely ridiculous. Have you talked to a doctor about this? And they're all big pisses too. I don't understand. (laughs) Maybe I should talk to a doctor. Well, I wouldn't go to a doctor right now. Let's just say that. I would actually... pee a lot. Yeah. Well, actually, this is an example of how big shifts can create opportunities for new businesses. I mean, for whatever reason, up until a month ago, at least where we are in Canada, it was unheard of to visit a doctor remotely. Like doctors wouldn't, you know, doctors won't even like tell you the results of your tests over the phone. They won't even renew a prescription for you over the phone. Even if you've been taking that prescription for 10 years, no matter what, you got to go in there. They got to see you in person and they've got to check all of the boxes and go through the process. But now that going to the doctor is actually a somewhat dangerous activity, all of a sudden that those rules have changed, right? They change now. Yeah, yeah. So instead of having to go to the doctor for trivial things, now a lot of that you can do remote. If I want to get a prescription renewed here in British Columbia, Canada, I can just call my doctor. If I have a question about my health, I can just call my doctor because they intentionally want to keep you out of their clinic, which makes sense. So this is a, a really exciting new business opportunity, which is basically remote medical services. And we've already seen in the jiu-jitsu community a lot of these like virtual gyms that have popped up where people teach their classes online. Now, there's a ceiling to how useful that can ultimately be because, of course, jiu-jitsu is a a freaking contact sport, right? You're never going to be able to learn jiu-jitsu unless you're actually grappling with someone. But I think there is still use there, right? I mean, things like seminars, for example, have always had value. Things like instructionals you can buy have always had value. And kids' classes... You can do a lot of the kids stuff, not all of it, but you can get some of it done and still provide value to the kids remotely. So there's opportunities to be had there. And again, I, you know, we keep saying, but this is the best time to probably think about that stuff. And another thing, you know, you mentioned online kids classes that might even encourage some of the parents to get involved too, because yes. the kids will need an UK, right? So they'll need, they'll need someone to actually try the moves on. And in, in a way it could not only create a bond between the, the parent and the child, but also incorporate more people into jujitsu just by osmosis, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Um, A few things that I've learned about being an entrepreneur, like one would be uh, I'd recommend starting small. That's just uh, a recommendation because I just, you know, some people have tons of money and they go and start a business. I wasn't one of them. So I had to start a, a humble business from the bottom and starting small was 
one of the smartest things I could have done, especially opening a school. Like I didn't, I didn't commit to to signing a lease right away. I f- actually first started in a in a karate gym, just renting mat space for a few hours out of the week, and then eventually a few clients came in, and then we found a different space. We we're always on the hunt for a new space because we wanted to get the hell out of there, and then we found a different place, and then. Still, that wasn't my space. I didn't sign on to a lease. The fit wasn't right. So we moved again. And finally, we're in the location we are at now, which is still a small gym. And I have people, you know, constantly are asking me, hey, why don't you open another location? And why don't you, you know, spread out a little bit? And then if you do that, you just become you become that you become spread out. And uh, you can't really concentrate. um, You can't really concentrate your efforts in one place. And the thing about uh, a business model like jujitsu is essentially, you know, unless you're like one of the head schools like uh, Autos or Alliance, um, if you're an individual independent gym like like mine is, I'm essentially the face of the brand. So if I open a bunch of, you know, locations and I can't be at those locations, then people probably aren't going to want to go there, right? Like they come here because they want to train with me. If I'm only here two days a week because I got to be somewhere else two days and another place two days, I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm watering down the, the experience, but in a way I am, right? Unless I have some really awesome instructors that are there to fill in the gaps, which could come at a later time, but well, the other thing too yeah. is that the ultimate purpose of a business is to pay the bills. And a lot of people lose track of this, right? As soon as they start seeing some degree of success, their immediate thought is, well, I got to expand. I got to expand. And it's kind of like the hedonic treadmill, right? You know, absolutely. That, yeah. If you're always looking to expand as soon as you possibly can, like you might wind up in a situation where you're constantly making either no money or you're running in the red and you don't want that, right? Yeah. It is better to be in a step to be experiencing a steady profit than to be like just growing like crazy and then constantly in the red. Now there are some there are some exceptions to that, right? Like if you're making some big crazy high-tech company or medical company and you're basically using like venture capital to pay the bills, that's a different type of business model. I'm assuming that when you're listening to this, you're not thinking you're going to go out and get like $20 million from a venture capital firm. We're talking more about people who are starting their own businesses from the ground up and bootstrapping. And if you're doing that, the most important thing is to manage your finances and make sure that you can pay yourself. Yeah, that's why I haven't gone to a bigger location. I'm at the point now where I could commit to a bigger location, but because of what my rent is now compared to what my rent would be, and you know, a new location comes with its own set of problems. Like, you got to put up all, you know, you got to redo your entire mat space. That's at least 10 to 20 grand. You got to build a washroom possibly with a shower. There might be un, other unforeseen renovations that you don't even consider. Before you know it, you're putting like 40, 50 grand into a new location. If I'm, th- you know, in debt, then what is, what is really the benefit of that? Yeah. I can understand someone whose business is growing out of control and they it, it, they need to get a new location. These are good problems to have for a business owner. And if if my business was at the point where I literally couldn't fit everyone in the door, then it would be time to be looking for a new location. But at this point, like I know that I'm going to cause myself way less stress if I if I just stay here. So why not just continue to grow the business the way it is? And like you said, Steve, as long as it's profitable, I mean it's 
it's kind of not broken, so don't fix it type yeah. thing. Well, you also have to really think about risk mitigation. And this is an area where, honestly, people in general are not good at risk mitigation. But when you're starting your own business, you're going to save yourself a lot of future pain if you spend some time thinking about risk mitigation. So as an example, let's say, Matt, that you did buy um, uh, you know, up, an upgraded gym. You doubled your space tri- or tripled your space, and then you're, you're able to get like two or three times as many students. What happens then if the COVID-19 outbreak happens, right? You're in a situation now where your costs are massively higher than they were before. You have a lot more students who you probably don't have as close relationships with. So you need to expect that more of them are going to quit. So now you're in a situation where you have less revenue and way higher expenses. That's how businesses go out of business. They get yeah, greedy. That's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, they, they get greedy and they focus on growth rather than sustainability. Mm-hmm. So as you grow, you want to make sure that your model remains sustainable and that you're putting money in the bank because if something does go totally wrong, which is happening right now, you want to make sure that your business can survive it. This is why when you look at like really, really knowledgeable investors, they're not just looking for the growth of the company. They're looking for the survivability of the company. They want to make sure the company is not drowning in debt, right? They want to make sure that the company has a way to actually get profitable. They want to make sure they've got a war chest, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's something that's very important to understand is you don't want to grow just because you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's a really great point, Steve, because even just you describing that made me start sweating. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a friend who um, is also a gym owner and he just moved into this beautiful big space and he is, he, he was already in debt and now this happened and he was, he was one of the last ones to shut down his school. I feel so bad for the guy, but I know that he's going to do fine because he's, he is part of a big team and he's an incredible instructor. So I feel like, um, you know, things are going to be fine for him, but it is, it's terrifying. Like if you have two locations, then you have twice the responsibility, twice the factors that can go wrong. You know, you have, you have so many, essentially you have uh, two businesses to run. And I think that having two businesses to run would actually detract from my ability to be on the mats and especially to be a competitor. Like if I open two businesses, uh, and I need to watch them both, it's going to be really hard for me to also be a competitor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I want to do is not be on the floor as much. I want to I want to keep doing jujitsu as much as I can. It's so much easier to do that when I have less to worry about. So that's why staying in a nice, small, humble space and just growing it out as strong as I can has been one of the best things that we can do. Um, another thing you mentioned about how, you know, because of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, there's businesses that are sort of creating now, uh, they're just spawning out of necessity essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's in a way that kind of touches on what I'm about to mention. And that's the idea of thinking outside of the box. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important thing. Um, again, that's, that's almost a muscle that needs to be grown because it's really easy to just not have any ideas. Um, it takes, it's hard to be creative. You really have to look for inspiration and follow trends and, and, see what works and and think about you know you mentioned steve thinking about stuff that doesn't exist but there is a demand for these are all ways you can think outside the box and it thinking outside the box i think is one of the hardest things an entrepreneur can do Mm -hmm. um because it is literally the essence of your creativity right like you really have to be creative if you're an entrepreneur uh to get your name out there to hit the public in different ways 
and to think for different ways to make profit. Like I think this podcast is, is thinking outside of the box, you know, definitely. Yeah. Um, thinking about things that you avenues that you haven't exhausted before as a business owner is super important. And you know, it, you could it, like, you could be shaving one day and all of a sudden an idea hits you. Right. And writing down those ideas later for later on is a huge thing too, because you, you don't want to have a great idea and then miss up that opportunity to do something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, you know, a good way you call, call, calling all the way back to, I think episode 40, a good way to, I don't know you remember this. Yeah, show. I know a good way, <laughs> a good way to think outside the box is with like inverted thinking, right? Which is, is a technique that you can use to help break out of existing thought patterns. It's very hard to look at a problem and forget everything you know, because there are so many things that we just take for granted as being part of life that can't be changed. And sometimes it takes a crazy person to actually come in and say, well, why does it have to be that way? Um, and so inverted thinking is a really, really powerful tool for challenging the thought patterns that we have that we take for granted. Like, why does it have to be that way? You know, a- asking really crazy, weird questions that seem totally counterintuitive. Like, why Why do you have to actually go to jujitsu and train with a person? What would it look like if two people trained and they weren't actually able to touch each other, right? These are questions that seem absolutely absurd. But by questioning, by questioning common sense, we can maybe look for new avenues to problems that we haven't really been able to identify before just because we had a blind spot. Um, and of course, in the context of jujitsu, inversion is such an important part of the game because sometimes rather than going in the obvious direction, if you turn and go upside down or backwards, it can actually create openings that wouldn't have been there if you did things in the way that your opponent would expect most. So... Inversion is a, is a very, very powerful way of attacking problems. Basically, you attack them backwards. So you look at the problem and you, from there, rather than like thinking of a, or trying to figure out step by step how to get, build a solution, you start from the problem and you kind of work backwards and you have to learn to put aside all of your preconceived notions about how things should actually work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is, that is, like I said, like it takes real creativity. It's one of the more challenging things that I've had to come up with as, as a business owner is how can you be creative and, and do different things? You know, you could go to, um, there's certain community events. Well, right now there's not, but <laughs> there's certain community events that you can go to just to get the exposure, you know, the, just, just to be seen basically. Um, Another thing is like knowing your audience, right? And always thinking about how are you going to market yourself? When I was at that first location, it was, uh, I don't want to use the word McDojo because I feel like it is disrespectful, but it, it, it was, it was, it was very much McDojo-ish. It was karate. Um, and after speaking with the business owner, I could tell that his main, um, his, his main tactic for, for staying alive was marketing. Mm-hmm. Whereas my main tactic for staying alive is um, furthering the art of jujitsu and furthering my my knowledge of jujitsu. So mine, I feel like it's my passion is more the art of jujitsu. Jujitsu is always changing. I always want to learn the best stuff so I can give my students the best knowledge they can. And I also want to compete. Whereas this guy's main engine that drove his business was how can I, how can I get more people in the door? How can I get more, more new leads? Constantly, I need more new leads. And they're just different business models, essentially, with different, um, like I said, different engines. And you really have to know your audience, right? He's 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 looking to get more kids in the door. Um, and there's really not of new trends that are going on to in karate that I can that I know of, right? Um, 
And in jujitsu, there's so many new trends going on. There's so many things that I feel like our system has that other gyms don't have in the area that that was my niche, right? So I knew my strengths. Um, I'm not a big marketing guy. I've done tons of marketing. I've spent thousands of dollars on marketing. And honestly, the best marketing I've had is my my reputation and, and word of mouth. And even the podcast is a huge one too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what people that come here come because I'm a competitor and because, uh, you know, I... I I'm a decent instructor, not because I'm putting on ads on Facebook monthly. Like he was telling me he spends probably like $500 a month on ads, like, yeah. like a big amount of money on ads. I, I don't even do that anymore because I'm finding that it just, there's not enough payoff. And that's another thing that you were mentioning, Steve, about what did you say? Uh, not, you didn't use the word trial and error. Basically, you you test to, something. Yeah, a feedback loop. Basically, ra- rather than making a big, big upfront commitment that could take you tons of time and money, and then you try it and find out it doesn't work, what you want to do is do little experiments, like do a, a short, quick, cheap experiment see if it works or not, and then pivot based off of that. And if it works, then maybe double down on it a little bit and see if it still works. If it doesn't work, switch off to something else. Exactly. Like I've, I've tried a lot of different marketing tactics and, uh, and in terms of my trial and error with that, I've, a lot of it hasn't been profitable. That's just what I've found. A, a lot of the, the leads that I get through the door that are good quality leads that stay are organic. So different different arts different scenarios different business models and different niches right and and it really it's important for you to not only know your strengths but to know your audience as well um yeah that's 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 a big part about how you're going to get people through the door especially if you're starting a like a martial arts school because I'll be honest at first it is it's stressful when people aren't coming in the door and you're like hey I need to accelerate the amount of leads I get and right now I need leads to come in to pay the bills and, um, and it's slow, but then eventually they start coming in, they start coming in. And then if they stay, I think that that's, it's way more valuable to maintain, uh, to retain leads rather than to just constantly get new yeah. ones. Right? Lead generation is very, very expensive. If your business model constantly requires you to be going out and finding new customers, that's a massive, massive cost. What is far better is to retain your existing customers. Uh, so if you are going through a lot of churn where you're constantly losing customers, you should really think about whether there's a way that you can minimize lead generation activities, find quality leads and have them stay on board. Yeah. And that's the hardest part. Like I would way rather have one quality lead than 10 leads that are not going to stay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've done things like Groupon as well. And I've heard martial arts gym owners, some of them are on there and they say, oh, well, it devalues your, your, your business, which in a way it does. Yes. But I've also gotten some good leads from Groupon as well. And it doesn't really cost you anything. You know, these leads, it's just more exposure in my opinion, even though you're giving them a product for cheap you know, that, that basically gets them in the door and then you can establish an, a relationship with these people. And if they like it, they'll stay, if not, they'll go. So, uh, especially in a, like a face-to-face business, like a martial arts studio, you really do wear a lot of hats. As I've mentioned, you know, you're the accountant, the janitor, the head instructor, the, um, the administrator, <clears throat> I mean, you have to fight everyone. It's really tough. And you have to also sometimes be the, a counselor to people. People will come to you with their problems and they will want someone to talk to. And you have to do that as well. So building that loyal, um, that loyalty in your, in your leads is so important. And that just comes by showing gratitude, uh, being a good listener, being flexible with people. Like if, uh, somebody comes to my school and they say, Hey, you know, 
I'm really in a pinch, but I really like training here. Is there any way you can be flexible on the dues? I'll, I'll do it 100% because I know that like, yes, it will close a sale. But on the other hand, it'll really help that person out. So um, they will remember that in times of like what happens right now with the virus outbreak. You know, a lot of the people now are, are telling me they still want to pay, even though even though the virus is preventing us from training. And that's probably because I was flexible with them or I was there for them when they needed it. And so that customer loyalty is only built by being a good person, really. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, people will surprise you. I know that we kind of live in an era of pessimism about human nature, but... At a biological level, like people mirror your responses. If you're good to them, they're going to be good to you. So it's definitely a good first step to be kind and reasonable and fair with your customers because they, that will come back to you at some point. Cool. Matt, anything else you want to add on this topic? I mean, um, I guess, yeah. You know, if, if you are in a stuck in a job and you regret going to that job every day, like it's something you don't want to do, but you have this passion that you're good at and you think that there is a way to monetize it, um, try to try to think outside the box and try and think of ways that you can do that. Even, you know, if, if this if this sounds like uh, if this is resonating with you, like send us some information and get our opinion on this, because this happened to me. And, uh, you know, I. I've said it before, the, if if I was going to look out the window in 10 years and and think about dream and just dream about doing jujitsu all day and I'm stuck in this office or I'm stuck in the kitchen or whatever, like that's, you're essentially creating a life of regret. And I think that that's kind of, a, to me, it's a personal hell, right? Like living with regret when you know that you could have done something different. I mean... I'm basically on vacation every day because, because, uh, well, quite literally, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, like, you know, if if things were normal and I'm going to jujitsu every day and that's my job, like, man, I'm on vacation every day. And that's because I decided to make a change in my daily routine Mm -hmm. and I decided to take a risk. It wouldn't have happened unless I decided to do those things. So, you know, if, if you feel like you're good at something and um, you're passionate about it and there's a need for it, then you can do it. It is possible. You just need to have a smart plan and you need to prepare yourself for it and you need to prepare yourself for the ups and downs. And then uh, once you do that, like the be- the payoff is I can't even describe how how fortunate I feel I am because of those decisions. So you know, send it, send it in. If, if you feel like you're in a rut or whatever, and, and you have passions, like let us know, because I would really like to hear those, those, uh, stories as well. Um, and then that can sort of help you make the jump. And that would be, you know, I don't want to be on the hook for anyone's business <laughs> failing. Cause it's ultimately, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to take a hundred percent extreme ownership of that. If you don't take extreme ownership of that, then I mean, that's one of the reasons why I didn't want a restaurant is I didn't want to rely on other people. I yeah. knew that if I opened a school, it would be a hundred percent my responsibility. And that's how I kind of like things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> last thing I want to mention is just, you know, we've talked about Kaizen before, and that's just the idea of constantly improving. And if you're going to be a business owner, you do need to be thinking about how you can constantly improve. And that can happen a lot of different ways in terms of jujitsu. You know, I'm constantly training, constantly doing strength and conditioning and stuff like that. But maybe I want to study some different marketing tactics that other people are doing. Not saying I'm going to spend a lot of money on marketing, but I do want to see sort of what is working. If there is something that's generating leads or if there's knowledge out there that I can gain, then that's something that's important. Um, or even just like, I don't know, buying new instructionals, things like that. Always looking at, at jujitsu in different ways and my business in different ways. 
um, you know, selling merchandise, things like that. There's tons of ways that you can generate revenue that you might not even think about, but you always have to be thinking about improving your business because staying stagnant is not really a great thing for a business owner. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, Stay, staying stagnant is actually a terrible idea in life, but especially in business. And it this can be a challenge because once things start to go okay, people get a little bit comfortable and they get complacent. And when that starts to happen, they start to not really take threats to the business seriously. This is how Blockbuster got obliterated, right? This is how Kodak got obliterated is they got too comfortable. And uh, part of Kaizen is understanding that you should never get comfortable. You should always be looking for ways to improve, whether things went well this time or went poorly this time. Every time it's an opportunity to learn to get better. And that's really the core of that philosophy. So absolutely critical if you want to operate a business because you have competition and you need to make sure that you remain competitive against all all that competition or you might lose your business. Yeah, the way that I do that is I'm always constantly looking for inspiration. And a lot of that comes from free things like YouTube and Instagram. And you you see something on Instagram, you're like, oh, that's really cool. I need to learn that. And then you go into the gym and you teach that to your students. And now they have new tools and it just... It's like a perpetual thing, right? And you really have to be hungry for for inspiration and knowledge because if you just if you just don't have a hunger for knowledge, you will stay stagnant. So, you know, and then you have to resort to cheesy marketing tactics, yeah. which I don't recommend. So, makes sense, makes yeah. sense. Cool. And of course, if you want more on this topic, if this is something that's of interest to you, we've talked in the past about this uh, way back in like episode 20 something, we did an episode on creating a gym. And of course, we had a great conversation with Rob Bernanke on episode 51, where he shared his perspective on running a, a business with ethics. So to recap the mental models that we talked about in this episode, we talked about return on investment. I mean, that is never more important than when you're operating or considering to operate a business. You always need to make sure that there is a path to profit, not just revenue, but actual money in your pocket. And you also need to understand what it's going to cost you to run a business. Are there upfront costs? Have you thought about them all? What about intangibles, like the amount of personal time, your the time you spend with your family, the stress level you're going to have to carry? All of these things need to factor into your calculation. We talked about the race to the bottom. So this is a negative um, business paradigm that happens sometimes where competition basically becomes overcompetitive to the point where services are undervalued. And you don't want to start a business where there is a race to the bottom because if, if your services are being undervalued out of the gate, it's going to be really hard for you to make the money that you deserve. We talked about investing in loss. A lot of businesses require a massive upfront investment in order to get profitable. If you can find a way to minimize that initial investment, you probably want to do that. But if you're entering into an industry where you do require a massive upfront cost, you need to make sure that you're willing to pay that cost and that there's a path forward. We talked about the feedback loop. When you're testing a new idea, you want to test it quickly and cheaply. The saying in the tech world is fail fast, fail cheap. So you want to do experiments to understand whether your business model is viable. So rather than spending a year building something before you launch it, it's better if you can just do a quick little test in a a month or a week or even a day and find out if there's appetite and if your idea works and people are willing to pay for it. And that's the critical thing because sometimes people will say that something is a good idea, but they're not actually willing to pay for it. We talked about inversion. This is the practice of attacking a problem backward. So 
An example that is timely right now is rather than thinking, hey, I want to start a jiu-jitsu school, how do I do that? You could invert the problem and think, we live in a world where you can't actually get within six feet of other people. So how do I build a business that works in that circumstance? That would be an example of inverted thinking. We talked about extreme ownership. Uh, This is one of the most effective strategies for solving problems, and that is to take responsibility for anything that comes up in your life, regardless of whether or not it is actually your fault. Because it doesn't matter whose fault it is, you can't get rid of a problem until you take responsibility to fix it. And if you're an entrepreneur, extreme ownership is going to become your way of life because you are ultimately responsible for everything that happens in your business. And last but not least, we talked about Kaizen, which is the Japanese principle of continuous improvement. The idea is every time something happens, you want to take that opportunity and use it as an opportunity to learn and get better. So whether you win, whether you lose, whether things go well, whether they don't, you take that opportunity to assess what happened and how you could be even more effective next time. And that requires being kind of constantly uncomfortable because you're always looking for ways to get better, even when things are going well. Now, going beyond that, Matt, um, anything else you wanted to add in terms of entrepreneurship or do you want to get to a question? Let's get to the question uh, in a sec. But yeah, extreme ownership is like as an entrepreneur, I feel like you almost need to have that in your blood. (laughs) You don't really have a business unless you have extreme ownership, right? Because you're if part of your strategy for running a business is to deflect blame or to find someone else to throw under the bus, you're going to have a hard time doing that when you're the one who's running the company. But that's not to say you're doing every single task. Eventually, as the business grows, you do need to have people uh, to delegate work to. Correct. As long as you, like in my instance, I'm mentoring people to become good instructors. And then eventually one day I want to be able to give away classes to these people in paid positions so that I can, you know, my, my amount of work doesn't go up and I still have really quality people teaching classes. Um, Right. Extreme ownership doesn't mean you do everything personally. It means you take responsibility for everything. That's right. And uh, yeah, the last thing I'll say is uh, if you are thinking about starting a business and you're telling your friends about it and then they say, oh, yeah, I'll be there or or I'll support you or I'll, yeah, let me know how I can help. Don't rely on them. Correct. They will yeah. not help you. Yeah. You are on your own. <laughs> that, that's a good point, right? People will say things and they might even they might even believe them. But ultimately, when it comes to taking action, getting people to say or believe something is very different from taking action. So here's actually a good strategy. If you're trying to test the idea of your business, ask for people to give you their credit card or ask for people's money. Like, don't, don't take it on faith. Don't say, hey, if I launched, um, I don't know, like an online jujitsu consulting business, you'd be interested in that, right? Would you be interested? And they'll say, oh yeah, sure. Would you pay for that? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, don't believe that. What you want to do is say, okay, if you're interested, give me your credit card. And <laughs> no, no, th- th- this is actually a common thing in tech. Say, okay, let, let's do it. Uh, we're going to do this on a trial. Give me your credit card. And if you get 10 of your buddies who are willing to do that, then you've hit a nerve. You've hit something that's going to work. But if everyone says, oh, I'm totally interested, but as soon as you ask for their money, suddenly they back out and wishwash on it, then probably that's a sign that your targeting is not really totally as good as it could be when it comes to starting a business. And you want to, I mean, that's not necessarily a strike against your friends. You want to get those answers now before you invest a lot of your energy creating the business, right? You don't want to build a business that has no chance of success because nobody's willing to pay for the service. Yeah, exactly. Uh, happened to me <laughs> when I started my school. Oh yeah, I'll come try it. No, nobody showed up. Yeah. Don't expect anyone to come out. You got to you lead development and, you know, 
cultivating all those leads is going to be part of the process and it's frustrating at first. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's get on to the question here. I am six months into training and now that I can do more than just survive, I am thinking about learning how to think. So for example, in my opponent's closed guard, I know how to open their guard in three different ways. How do I decide what method to use? Do I just see what's available after grip fighting and gaining posture? Or should I decide first to open their guard with my elbows and work for that and maybe audible if a different opportunity comes up? Whoa, he's grinding the elbows into the thighs? (laughs) I love this guy. That's not not a move. (laughs) Should I open their guard first, then see what pass is available? Should I open their guard with the intent of doing an over-under pass? Should I be looking to open the guard with the intent of pressure passing and see what's available after opening the guard? So basically, I I think what this guy is asking is, how do you decide what move to use? Like he's he's kind of familiar now with the concept of posture, structure, and base. How do you decide when to go for what particular move? So the specific example he gave was when you're hanging out in the dude's guard. So in the clothes guard, right? Yeah. So... I think he's kind of putting the chicken before the egg because he's he's saying, should I do the over-under pass inside the closed guard? Which means he's putting himself into a triangle, right? Like you can't go into an over-under pass unless the guy's leg is between your leg and you can't do that unless you open their guard first. So he's absolutely right about how he needs to open the guard first. Now, how he goes about doing that I mean, I'm not, I don't think he should be necessarily passing just yet. The idea of breaking the closed guard and even, uh, and even just getting out of the closed guard is a huge process and a huge battle in itself against high level guys. So, I mean, definitely first, as always, my answer is improve alignment. So I would first recommend trying to get your posture straight up. You know, don't let them pull your head down towards their chest. Try and get your head straight up and try and, um, you know, create frames with your arms and there's going to be hand fighting. They're going to try and grab your collar. They're going to try and pull your arm across the center line or isolate your arm. You cannot let that happen. You have to posture up. Then it's your choice. Usually what people do, there's that old school guard break where they, you know, they sort of shift the knee into the middle and then they back out. I find that really difficult. I think a better answer is to try and stand up altogether and try and, uh, you know, either gain like a sleeve control, um, or even just frame on the arms and stand up and then you're going to have to put your hips in and it's going to be a battle from there. But at least you've now broken the guard or stood up in the guard and it's going to make it harder for your opponent to create close guard attacks. So now what your opponent's going to have to do is transition to a different attack. They're going to have to transition to an open guard attack or they're going to be you know, you're going to be standing and they're going to be locked around uh, your your torso with their closed guard. Um, but you can't say, I'm going to go into this pass when you're still stuck inside the closed guard. You need to first improve your alignment, create posture, and then you need to decide what you're going to do. And usually what I'd recommend is standing up. Yeah, this is great advice and it ties into how I wanted to answer this question. So when I was much more junior at jujitsu. And I'm pretty sure I've told this story on the podcast. I used to have it in my head that the thing that made you good at jujitsu was that you could just make moves happen. Like, you know, it could be like you're a pool player and you could say eight ball in the corner pocket and then shoot it and get it every time. That's what I thought jujitsu was about. But it's not like that. You know, if you're a black belt and you're sparring with a, a white belt, 
unless you have a massive, massive strength advantage, you can't just do a move and guarantee it's going to happen. Like if Matt's sitting in my guard and I just decide I'm going to triangle Matt, I, I can't force that situation. I don't know what Matt's going to do. To, to Matt's point, I don't know if he's going to stand up. I don't know what he's going to do. The opportunity for a triangle might just not be there. So I can't force that. What I do need to do is take advantage of whatever opportunities do come up. And I've got to have an answer for each of them. And to Matt's point, the best thing to focus on, rather than thinking, hey, I want to do an over underpass. How do I make that happen? The best way to, to attack this is to invert that thought and think, okay, well, I'm going to keep my alignment and I'm going to break my opponent's alignment. I'm just going to make sure I'm really comfortable here and he's not. And eventually, if I break his alignment enough, he's going to leave an opening. And then whatever pass I do depends on what that opening looks like. If the guy's legs just go into the position where an over-under makes sense, then sure, I'm going to go for it. If I wind up in a position where both of my arms are under his legs, I might do like a stack pass or something, right? It totally depends on the situation. So rather than trying to force a specific move to happen, I think it's way better to focus on keeping your alignment, breaking your opponent's, and identifying openings that happen and then using the right move for that opening. So that might not be the most satisfying answer, but frankly, even if you're not going for a specific thing, as long as you're constantly keeping your alignment and breaking your opponents, you're going to be way better off than if you're trying moves and they're all failing on you. Yeah. Alignment first, then moves. And this sort of, uh, I have issues inside good close guards too, as so many people do. And so what I did was I just started studying old school jujitsu again. Like how do I, how do I escape the closed guard? When I stand up in the closed guard, what do I do next? And then on the flip side, if I'm, if I have closed guard, what can I do? If my partner stands up, what should I do next? So sort of build avenues from, uh, in this situation, we're, we're using old school jujitsu, which is mm -hmm honestly very common in in, uh, in competition you see close guard a lot in competition and if you have a wicked close guard man it's like it's death for the other guy so definitely watch some of the the old school greats like if i'm gonna watch close guard stuff probably gonna watch hodger gracie you know like probably one the greatest of all time you know sorry gordon but definitely like the best of all time and if you're gonna watch close guard nobody nobody better to watch than him um and sort of see what he does but i think alignment is always the first step if you're out of alignment and you try and uh you know and you're already trying to pass when he's like that's just not gonna happen yeah yeah, yeah. I, one of the things that's funny and i don't know if you find this matt but i find that Everyone is so focused on more modern jujitsu that whenever you're playing someone who just is using a, an old school traditional game, it's so confusing because you haven't used those moves in so long. Like when I, so I'm sparring true. with someone and they pull closed guard on me and they're going for like scissor sweeps, it's baffling to me because I, I, I haven't used those in so long that it takes me a while to get my head back into that space. So sometimes it's, it's good to just use things that people aren't currently ready for because the game has moved in a different direction. I mean, if a technique is still fundamentally sound, that's a lot more important than whether it's currently fashionable. Yeah, the, the fundamentals will always come back, guys. And cooking is the same way, actually. It, you know, no matter what happens, the fundamentals will always be there because they are tried, tested, and true. And if you're not used to them, like I've had that happen recently at a tournament, I wasn't ready for the fundamentals, and uh, the guy smoked me with old-school jiu-jitsu, and that's because I was not prepared. So always go back to the old stuff. Yep, sounds good, sounds good. So, you know, this episode was about entrepreneurship, and one of the things that we talked about is how if you want to be an entrepreneur, 
you can't be afraid to ask people for their money. So let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, we've, as you know, we've launched a Patreon and I can't thank you guys enough for supporting us. Um, it's made a tremendous difference. And the more you can support us, the more stability we'll have during these challenging times. And the more that we can continue to focus on creating more and more good content to hopefully fill the void that's left by not being able to go to the gym. We want to be able to give you guys more and every donation, every every patron helps. So if you want to help us, please go to patreon.com slash models Again, patreon.com slash models That's the single most helpful thing you can do to support the show and keep the lights on for us. That really helps out a lot. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for your ongoing support. It really motivates us to give you the best content we can. We're constantly working on new stuff. Um, and I just can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Yeah, thank I'd you re- so much, all of you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, additionally, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's the, the main website from there that links off to everything else. And you can also find a database where we fully describe all of the terms and mental models that we talk about on the show. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store. From there, you can pick up gi patches, t-shirts, all of the merch proceeds help us as well. So that's another way to support us and to promote the brand. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join. From there, you can sign up for our mailing list where we send out more articles and content in addition to what we cover on the show. And of course, if you want to talk to us, there's a sign up form on the website, but you can also reach out to us on Facebook and on Instagram. We also post tons of updates on there if you want to see what we're up to or maybe get some other ideas. So Matt, I think that was actually a really interesting chat and I'd like to definitely echo the sentiment that if you guys are thinking about making the leap during this time of uncertainty, if you want some help, if you want some advice, I mean, we've all been there, so please do reach out. We'd be happy to act as a sounding board and maybe answer some questions for you if you have anything that you need to know. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys, cool. for listening. Thanks and we'd love to hear any of your, uh, your stories. Yeah, definitely, definitely do write in. Please do share your stories. Probably would be inspirational to a lot of the other listeners who were in your shoes. Anyway, take care, guys. See you next time. Bye-bye.